Hey everyone, you're listening to the Simple Electronics Podcast, and I'm your host, Dan, from the Simple Electronics YouTube channel. And with me today, I've got a very special guest, Scotty from Strange Parts. How are you, Scotty? I'm good. How's it going, Dan? It's going great. I mean, sitting across from another YouTuber I respect with awesome content, which I am, uh, I I don't think jealous, envious, there we go, envious (laughs) of. And I'm just really glad you... Had time to sit down with me, and it's no problem. It's well earned. Um, Thanks. Thanks. Yeah, I'm glad we could uh, uh, chat here. It's great to be on. Just in case my audience have been sitting underneath a rock for the last five or six years, can you just tell us who you are and a little bit of what you do? Sure. My name's Scotty, and I run a YouTube channel called Strange Parts. And uh, I would say that, you know, that my vision for the channel is sort of the intersection of uh, technology, travel, and adventure. And I got my start uh, when I was living in Shenzhen, China. Um, I uh, ran across the crazy idea to uh, try and build my own uh, iPhone from parts that I bought in the uh, cell phone repair markets in China. And um, and spent five months doing that and making a, what essentially was a short documentary film about that. And uh, that went crazy viral on YouTube, and all of a sudden, I was a full-time YouTuber, <laughs> so full-time YouTube creator. So, um, you know, the rest has been kind of just riding that ride. Um, I've done a lot with modifying iPhones and um, a lot of uh, going inside factories in China and showing people what factories are, are like. Um, and... Uh, and then since COVID, I, I haven't. Uh, I came back to the U.S. for for uh, Christmas in 2019, and I haven't had a chance to go back yet. So I'm, I've been sort of adapting my content for what I can do here in the U.S. I mean, I feel like it's coming soon, though, because the world uh, is yes. slowly returning to a normal. So yeah, that's going to be interesting. Yeah, I think we're getting pretty close to, to me being able to go back to China. I'm guessing by like end of the year, or early next year, that that's a reality. Um, so I, I can't wait. We can expect some more perusing the markets uh, in yes. some point in the next year or two then. I, sure. Yes, I think so. And some more factory tours. I'm really eager to start doing factory tours again. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm just in the early stages of talking to factories here in the US. Uh, and then as soon as I can go back to China, I'll go back and do some factory tours there. So let's start in the beginning, because most uh, YouTubers that base themselves around a concept, they're in that concept, and then they decide to make a, a video about it, and then they move sure. into that area, makes it a lot easier. But you went the other way. You were in Shenzhen first, and then made a video. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So I, uh, I, I have a background as a software engineer. And I started my own company uh, called App Monsta in 2010. And around 2015, I decided I, I didn't want to run that business full time anymore. And so I handed it, that off to my second in command uh, and the team, and they, they continued to run it. And I was looking for my next entrepreneurial adventure. Uh, I had gone nomadic you know, around that time, too. So I had, I had put all my stuff in storage and I was traveling full time. And uh, I had the idea that, you know, this is kind of at the early end of IoT when IoT was starting to get hot. I think before we even really had that sort of name for it. But I had this concept that, you know, maybe I'd start a a company that blended my love for electronics and software. uh, And, you know, I'd 
I was a trained software engineer, but I was, you know, I'd always been an electronics hobbyist. And so I kind of heard through the nomad grapevine that Shenzhen was the place to be when it came to manufacturing electronics. And so I decided that, you know, I would go up there and, and kind of get a lay of the land and, and, you know, figure out how one would go about manufacturing electronics and in the process, hopefully get some inspiration for, you know, what product I was going to build. And so I went up there and, and, uh, was just blown away. I mean, the markets are awesome. There are factories everywhere. I fell in with this great group of open source hackers that was kind of loosely organized by uh, Ian Lesnet from um, uh, Dangerous Prototypes, uh, who makes the Bus Pirate. And uh, we'd get together every night for barbecue and drink beer, and and everybody would talk about either what they'd found in the markets that day, or uh, you know the trials and tribulations they'd had at the factory that day, because a lot of people were manufacturing uh, open source hardware. And uh, and I, I le- just learned a ton by sitting at those. I had you know pages and pages of notes from those barbecue sessions. Uh, so you're in Shenzhen and you're a little bit of a nomad. So I'm guessing yep. it's like living in hotels and hostels or st- stuff like that. I, I know uh, uh, traveling in China is a bit different. Yes, um, it's a challenge because yeah, and you did shoot from your hotel room. So it's so, you know, you were in hotels at some point. Yes. But then when when do you go, you know, what would be cool. I could probably build an iPhone out of just parts I find in the market. Well, when does this happen to you? Yeah, it actually the idea for building my own iPhone came out of one of those uh, nights at barbecue. Uh, someone from the, the British Council. Uh, came to dinner one night. They were in town for a couple of weeks. And she said, you know, I've been walking through the markets. The, the way the markets are laid out, you have to walk through the cell phone repair markets or at least buy them to get to kind of what I call the main markets, which is where you can buy, you know, random components and buttons and switches and things like that. And, you know, the market dynamics have been such that the main markets have been kind of in decline for a while, right? You know, if you want to buy chips, reality is it's much easier to buy them online than it is in person. Uh, and at the same time, the cell phone repair markets have just been going gangbusters, right? I mean, it's just crazy busy, but none of us at barbecue understood anything about the the cell phone markets. We, we understood the main component markets and, uh, and those were, you know, it took a little bit to understand, but sort of out in the open, you could understand it unless you were a cell phone repair person, the cell phone markets were just incredibly opaque. So she said, you know, I walked through the cell phone markets and I think there are enough parts there that you could build your own phone. And she bought a, you know, she bought a screen and a couple of other things. And, and, uh, I said, you know, that's a great idea. Uh, and then she went back to, to England and kind of nobody in, in that circle, she didn't seem to do anything with it. Nobody in the circle did anything with it. And I said, you know, nine months later, I still, you know, this idea is still poking around in the back of my brain. I said, you know, that's a great idea. And, you know, I wonder if I could go do that. And, uh, and so, you know, I tried to think, I was sort of an entrepreneur brain, right? So I thought, you know, what, well, if I go spend a bunch of time figuring this out, like what's the product that's going to come out of it? And I couldn't really figure that out. I had some ideas, but they seemed, you know, maybe a bit dodgy. And so uh, I had been playing around with video at that point. Uh, I had bought a little RX100, which is kind of like a high-end point and shoot that fits in your pocket. And I'd been playing around with that because I was just so blown away by Shenzhen. It was so different from my image of what China was. Uh, it was so much bigger and more advanced and and uh, 
there were just all these sort of awe-inspiring things everywhere I went, you know, from factories to just walking down the street to the markets. And, uh, and so I said, you know, maybe the like output of this process of figuring this out and of this sort of adventure, uh, into to figuring out how the markets work is telling a story, right. Is, is making a video. And originally I thought it was going to be a series of sort of vlogs. And I'd seen Ian very successful with his electronics business, dangerous prototypes in making free content. So, you know, Ian's a really strong writer. He wrote for Hackaday. Um, and so that was his main output, but he also had kind of dabbled in, in videos and he'd come to the conclusion that videos weren't really worth his time that they, they take so long to make that, you know, he was much better off writing, uh, blog articles, but I kind of, you know, got that idea in my head of like, if you put out a lot of free content, you can drive, you know, you can build an audience that's excited about you and then you can sell them cool stuff. And, uh, and Ian was doing that very successfully with his bus pirate and a whole bunch of other, um, you know, public domain designs that he, he designed. And, uh, and so I thought, well, you know, maybe I can make a video about this iPhone process and maybe that's a start to, you know, kind of a marketing channel for, <laughs> for my new, you know, electronics company, whatever that ends up being. And so I just kind of dived in. I, I'd never really done any serious video production and I kind of just dived in. I started with my, um, you know, combination of my phone and this little RX 100. And I just started shooting and I was like terribly embarrassed. And like, you know, I was getting all sorts of looks on the street and I really didn't know what I was doing. I mean, I don't speak a ton of Chinese and I was kind of just wandering around the markets day after day after day, you know, learning little bits and nuggets from like watching what was going on. And, uh, and I did a couple months of that and then Chinese new year hit. And, uh, in, if anybody doesn't know, Chinese new year is this kind of uh, it's this really interesting phenomena. It, imagine for like an American, imagine if Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's were all one holiday that lasted like two to three weeks. Uh, so you have kind of all the family obligations and the like food and the like drinking uh, and the partying and the fireworks are all this one big holiday that everybody goes home for. And that last piece is the, the most significant, which is that it is the largest modern human migration uh, in, in the world right now. So Shenzhen is a city of 17 million and 85% of those leave for two to three weeks uh, around Holy. Chinese New Year. It just empties out. It becomes out. empty. And, yeah. And it happens in the matter of a couple days. And all of the flights are booked uh, like internally in China. Um, all of the trains, all of the buses, like there's no transport. So it, and none of the restaurants are open. Like it's, it's a ghost town. There are no taxis. Like it's, it just empties out. And so all of the foreigners leave and go somewhere else, you know, because it's just not very practical to stick around. And, uh, and so I had all this raw footage and, you know, I, I thought I was going to be editing along the way and that didn't happen. And, and so I, I went down to Bali and um, hung out in a in a in a uh, like a co working space down there and just sat and edited and uh, and put together what turned into well I was trying to figure out these episodes and a, a friend recommended well why don't you make a trailer first and that trailer uh, turned into the video that you know the first video on the channel which is how I made my own iPhone in China um, and that you know that blew up and. Uh, it's done like 25 million views now. And, and, uh, you know, once I hit that point, it was, 
it, it was very clear I needed to focus on making more content, not on building electronics. So, you know, I still would love to build electronics and, and sell them as part of Strange Parts, but uh, I'm I'm only now finally getting to the point where I feel like I've got got an understanding of how to do both. So I'm looking forward to that. That video is just so cool. If um, if you're the type of person that doesn't like compliments, just just put your fingers in your ears. Um, <laughs> but this video, if I were to put it into words, it's like this delicious combo of sort of like um, uh, like uh, sort of like on uh, off the cuff sort of uh, filming, uh, vlogging, uh, sort of explaining what's going on as you go, the trial, the error. It's like it's it's a it's a story in five parts. The whole thing is is actually a masterpiece. So I don't know well, how you, you put that together as your first video. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was a lot of just sort of, you know, throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what stuck. You know, I got a lot of helpful feedback from friends and I actually got a lot of, uh, opportunity. Um, it's only recently that I've sort of figured out this is what I was doing, but you know how, like I've been listening to a lot of stand up comic, podcasts recently, like Burt Kreischer and Tom Segura and, and those sort of folks. And, uh, and so I've been hearing a lot about how professional stand-up comics work on material. And one of the big things they do is they go to, you know, whatever their local, you know, comedy club is, and they just kind of work out ideas on stage and see what resonates. And, you know, as storytellers, uh, we don't necessarily, I mean, a lot of YouTube creators I, I, I'm friends with, like we might share ideas with each other, but we don't have that. But inadvertently I had that space to work out ideas at barbecue <laughs> and at the coworking space where I was, you know, people would ask, well, what are you working on or how is it going? And I'd have a chance to sort of tell my story over and over. And we had kind of this rotating uh, door of people coming into Shenzhen for a couple of weeks to visit you know, and they'd come to barbecue. And so I had these constant opportunities to be retelling the story over the course of months. And so I got really good. Like I had kind of refined this story the way a stand-up comic would on stage to be the most salient points and figured out like what resonated with people and what didn't. And so I think that really helped. And it's, it's actually something I miss a lot right now is having that sort of constant audience to, and constant new audience to sort of retell the same story to while I'm working on it. Um, so I think that really helped. And then, you know, just kind of grinding on it and just being like taking my software engineering brain, which is sort of like, you know, if you think about things like code reviews, right. Of just like refining code over time and like coming in and, you know, kind of roughing things out and then coming in and refining and then refining and then refining and refining. Um, you know, I just, I kept doing that on this story and, uh, Yeah. It, it's turned out really well, you know, it's, there's a million things about it that I would go back and change now that I've, you know, no, four or five you're not allowed. In and like, <laughs> no well, I would love to, I would love to come in and remaster it because like my audio skills and my like color correction skills and things like that were really lacking. And there are a bunch of pieces about it that like, it could just look a lot nicer without changing any of the cuts. So at some point that might happen. Um, do you but know who uh, Dave Jones is? I do. Of I do. The, from EV yeah. blog? Yes, yes. Yep. So he constantly says, it's YouTube. It has to feature you. And the yes. fact that it's it's imperfect makes it perfect. It's not a Hollywood production. It's yep. 
some guy wandering around the Shenzhen markets who who honestly probably didn't think of himself uh, as someone who was who was capable of of finishing this this product to have a finished yeah. iPhone when he set out for this, but he did it anyway. That yeah. is the brilliant part. It doesn't. Yeah, I think the the fact that it's shot by yourself in the in adverse conditions because if I'm not mistaken, it's not kosher to film openly in the Shenzhen markets, right? Yeah, folks don't like it when you roll in with a big camera. So I, I keep it pretty low key in there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and so because uh, I remember some of you your know, videos, and I try and be filming. really ethical about how I like what I do with that that video and how I show it. Because um, there are there are real concerns, like the sellers in the markets kind of want to keep their heads down and like don't want to be they don't want to be made an example of. So I, I try really, really hard to honor that um, and not show anybody's face who not only doesn't like say that that's okay, but also that I have a good sense, like has the context to make an educated decision there because there are a lot of Chinese folks that don't really understand YouTube or anything like that and may not have a sense of like how big a channel I have now. So um, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Try and be real careful about that. And then uh, Apple pissed off everyone shortly after that video. Yes. And removed the headphone. You knew where this was going. Removed yeah, yeah. the headphone jack. I think is in the iPhone 6, if I'm not mistaken. I don't remember. Uh, they removed it now. in the 7. So the 6S had the seven. a headphone jack and the 7 did not. Yeah. And you said, hold my beer. Yeah. I'm going in. Yep. And yep. Well, this- I got a number of comments on the iPhone video that were like, hey, you should bring the headphone jack back. And I was like, you know, I still really like having wired headphones. I had not gotten on the Bluetooth bandwagon yet. I finally have, but it took a while. I had these great uh, like in-ear headphones that um, I I just wore everywhere and, uh, and they were wired. And so, you know, I really still wanted to be able to use those, but I also wanted to be able to get a 7 so that I could have the upgraded camera um, because I was shooting on my phone a lot. Uh, and so I said, yeah, let's, let's give it a shot. And, uh, you know, I just, I had this intuition that it would be possible. And the main blocker was like, is there going to be enough space inside this phone? And so there's a really like nice pivotal moment of that video where I found this like piece of plastic that, you know, doesn't really do very much. That's just kind of taking up the space where the, uh, where the headphone jack would be. And, you know, it, uh, it, it has a, yeah. it has one function, which is it sort of holds the, there's a membrane that is air permeable, but not water permeable that helps equalize the, uh, the pressure inside the phone to the outside pressure, you know, as you go up and down in altitude so that the barometer walks, works per- properly. And so that you don't like blow out a seal or something. And, uh, but it's a very large piece of plastic for, for what it's holding in. And, uh, and that's, you know, I took that out and said, I don't need this phone to be waterproof anymore. And, uh, you know, that's where the headphone jack went. And you actually, you sort of, if, okay, I'm, I'm thinking back here because I watched that video on release because I found your video, your, your channel from your, uh, your first video. Um, but if I'm not mistaken, you sort of, um, took a shortcut and, and I'm saying this very loosely because it didn't make it easy by any means. Um, but you used, I think it was an Apple dongle to turn the, um, the regular port into a headphone jack and you disassembled it, 
took the little chip that was inside a little flex cable and you plug that in so it acts as though you were plugging in headphones into the actual port of the phone exactly which is incredible like how, how did you like i don't even have the mental capacity to reason this far and there you are and you did it I'm not done. sure that the mental leap is really that far. Um, I I knew that I didn't want to be doing any really hardcore engineering if I could get away with it, right? Like, you know, the uh, they they say that you know one of the three best qualities of a uh, uh, what are the th- three qualities of a, a programmer? Uh, laziness, hubris, and I forget what the third one is. But you know, I'm I definitely will try and find the the lazy way out if I can. And there are a bunch of hurdles that if you were to do it not the lazy way, you'd have to face, right? You have to face the Lightning Protocol. You have to face MFI, which is uh, manufactured for iPhone, which is the like um, cryptographic chip that... Uh, is that what MFI means? Wow. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> I thought and it so was fancier than it's that. It's <laughs> a licensing program, right, for things that plug into the Lightning port. And, uh, and so you need to like you need to be a registered developer with Apple. You need your hardware approved by them, similar to the app approval process. And you need to get a a chip. You need to buy a chip from them for every single device that you make that has this like cryptographic whatever on it. Uh, So I definitely didn't want to go down that road. And then also you have all of the like audio protocol, like DAC stuff that you need to deal with, right? Because there's no audio lines on a lightning you know, lightning is essentially USB under the cover, right? With some additional like handshake. Uh, and so I didn't want to touch any of that if I could get away with it. <laughs> and so it was like, well, what out there already exists that, you know, does all of these things. And there's a lightning to audio jack, you know, adapter that everybody was buying early, you know, early in the iPhone seven, they might've even bundled one with, they, I think, yes, they had one in the box on iPhone seven. Um, okay. And the reason I know that is because I was going through those adapters um, constantly, right? Like I, I probably went through 20 or 30 of those adapters because I was tearing them apart to get the board inside the lightning connector. There's actually a small PCB that has all of the electronics that we just talked about. The MFI, the lightning, the, the uh, DAC, all of that is in the lightning plug itself. Uh, and for a little while... And I, I don't remember what shows in the video, but the, the real story is that I first went around the, well, I first got one or two, I think from the Apple store, there is one Apple store, like official Apple store in Shenzhen. And then I went around the markets and I got all of the, like, uh, the knockoff ones, including there were some like knockoff splitters that. Uh, you could plug in lightning and then had an audio jack and you could plug in another lightning cable and that way you could charge and listen to music at the same time. And because that was one of the goals was like, how do I make this thing so that you can use both the headphone and the lightning jack? And I, I didn't succeed at that. There were some paths to it. I ended up with like an official Belkin one, but all the market like knockoff stuff didn't work very well. And Apple, it looked like Apple was working pretty hard on like an iOS software update basis to try and prevent those guys from succeeding. Um, but there was like a Belkin one, but it was huge. It was massive. And getting that, you know, preferably I wasn't spending my own boards here, um, you know, trying to replicate others, P- 
PCBs and their board was just massive. Um, you know, it was like the width of the bottom of the phone. <laughs> I was going, oh, there's damn. no way. So anyway, I ended up really needing these OEM lightning to headphone jacks, but they were expensive at, at the Apple store. I forget. I think they were like, I don't know, 20 bucks, 30 bucks, something like that. Um, and so I, I just, you know, kept exploring through the markets and asking around and asking for like, you know, how can I get OEM original Apple adapters? And I eventually found that you could get them at like, I forget, maybe they were like 10 bucks in the Apple store. I think I was getting them for like seven and I was getting these original ones and I kind of eventually figured out that where they were coming from was, so one of the things that happens, a lot of, there's a lot of smuggling across the border between Hong Kong and Shenzhen. Uh, and if you go look, there are some amazing news articles about things like uh, zip lines across the river. There's a canal that divides the border and people were stringing up zip lines at night across the border and sending baskets full of iPhones across the border. And the reason is that iPhone is considered a luxury good in China and so has like a 30% tax on it, luxury good tax, something like that. So, but in Hong Kong, there was no tax like that. And so you could simply go to an Apple store in Hong Kong, of which there are a number, buy an iPhone, bring it back to China and sell it for a profit uh, and still sell it for less than, uh, than the tax markup you know, then you would buy at the, at the official Apple store. And so there were a lot of new phones coming across the border from Hong Kong at the time. And in, in fact, like there were so many com coming across the border, it was actually really hard to buy a new iPhone in Hong Kong because there were just people standing outside the Apple stores all night to be the first ones in the door to buy them, to bring across the border to Shenzhen. Uh, and so they were just selling out every day for months and months and months and months and months. Uh, well, when you buy a new iPhone, you get all of the accessories that are with it. And Chinese people being the like shrewd business people they are, there's just this like deep focus on how can we squeeze every last penny out of something. So they were not selling the phones in their boxes with their accessories. They were parting it all out. And so you could buy the phone separately. And there's like, there's an incredible market around, you know, buying phones like that. Um, Prices change daily. It's very interesting. Uh, but you can also buy the accessories. And the I was buying the accessories at like 75% of what the like sticker price was. And I was buying them like 10 at a time. Uh, these nice. you know, original headphone adapters um, that were just in the boxes with new iPhones coming out of Hong Kong or wherever else. I feel like I remember you breaking a couple in the video um, <laughs> trying to. Either that or you were trying to lift the chips. I, I'm not 100% sure if that's what it was, but there was some some damage being caused, which I feel like is very important to show in a video like this because, um, I mean, again, the story is not how you're some high-level uh, hardware engineer that no, I'm you not. Know, super easily did everything. Like, I love the fact that we were along for the ride with you. Yeah. And obviously now you have acquired all these skills, but it was so sweet to see you acquire them in front of our eyes. Like, that was yeah. awesome. The first time you plug in a battery on that first iPhone or the first time you plug in your headphones on, on the iPhone with the new jack, the elation on your face is real. I felt yeah, it. I was absolutely. there with you, which I think is so important. So that's 
you know, again, your storytelling is just top notch. Well, thanks. Thanks. It's, you know, I, I, um, I look a lot to, uh, you know, the hero's journey and I, I sort of adapt that to, uh, the engineer's journey or the hacker's journey. Right. And it, they really map quite well, you know, as, as engineers, we go through this process of, of the hero's journey and the hero's journey has a bunch of pieces to it, right? That if you're, if folks aren't familiar, the hero's journey is kind of this storytelling model that's been around for a long, long time, um, hundreds or thousands of years. Um, but it's also the basis for pretty much every like action movie ever made, right? So Star Wars is the is the one that's really typically um, referenced when you talk about uh, hero's journey. But you know, Lord of the Rings, like you know, pretty much. I'm sure I don't watch superhero movies, but I'm sure every single one of them is hero's journey. Uh, pretty much and, with an American slant, <laughs> right? Yeah, and so there's like there's a bunch of components to the hero's journey, right? There's a bunch of sort of like. Uh, key pieces that make a very fledged, fleshed out hero's journey. You can go read this, there are books on it, but you know, there are things like that they, and they all have names, right? So there are things like the call to adventure uh, and the call to adventure. So the, you know, the protagonist starts out in a normal world in the ordinary world. And they go into this, this other sort of adventure world. And the, the key piece to that is the, the call to action. And then there's usually a refusal of the call where they say, no, I'm not going to do that. You know, I, I'm just going to live my normal life. And then they change their mind and they accept the call and then they go into this other world, right? So you can look at both of the videos we've talked about so far as a pretty pretty strong mapping onto that model, right? Um, and, uh, you know, there definitely were like refusals of the call <laughs> early on, right? And I don't know that I told, told that super well as part of the story. Um, you know, there's, there's some pieces that like work better it's easier to do in a feature film length than in a YouTube length, right? Or, you know, I, I have a pretty hard time. I, I Anything over like 30 or 40 minutes doesn't do very well on YouTube or is hard to, to make do well. Oh, yeah. I think that's what you mentioned in your newest video. Yeah, that, right. Yeah. Um, and, and it's a pacing issue as well. It's both like a time length and a pacing issue, which is things have to be very fast paced, particularly in, in the world of TikTok now where people's, you know, are expecting that like instant payoff when they click on something. Uh, but, you know, before I did that video, there was definitely this like long period of, should I do this? Is this just going to be way too hard? You know, am I going to get stuck? Right. Like, and I, I think I go there, through that with just about every big project that I take on, you know, a factory tour, not so much, but you know, any big engineering project, I'm kind of like, well, you know, like, and there's a, a period of sort of research of like, is this really going to be possible? Like how, you know, I need to at least see in my head how it might be possible before I'm willing to take it on, you know? Uh, and and so, yeah. And yeah, you know, we're, I'm glad you, you did. Um, I mean, at what point do you find yourself getting uh, sort of attention from the big players that maybe you were watching at the time? Cause I mean, you did do yeah. a video with uh, Linus four years yes. ago. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. Like, I don't think I was super steeped in YouTube culture when I first got started. And so a number of big folks reached out to me and I had no idea who they were. And like, I only barely knew who Linus was before we did that video, which I feel really shame to admit. But it's just the reality of like, you know, I was, I was just running in different circles. Uh, the Linus thing happened just because uh, his fans, his fans are, no, I think it was one of his employees 
knew that he was in town and was like, hey, you should hit up Scotty. Like it was right, it was right after I'd had, you know, it was pretty early on, right after like, I think I'd already done the headphone jack thing and maybe one or two others, but you know, the channel was blowing up and and so I don't remember if he reached out, I reached out something. Um, there was a few big YouTubers in town um, for this OnePlus launch. They had they had flown a bunch of folks in to kind of do factory tour type stuff. And, uh, and so, you know, I'd shown a couple of them around the markets. Uh, and yeah, we made a, a Linus with video. Uh, we made a video with Linus. And, um, and uh, yeah, got to know him. He's a super nice guy. And he's been, you know, a, a, a great um, supporter of the channel. He's really helped me over the years. So um, that was super awesome. I think he said some of his staff were fans of yours, which I mean, yes, I mean, it's pretty obvious. Um, yeah. If you're in the tech space in, you know, a couple of years ago, there's no way you haven't heard of, you know, strange parts. There's, there's just not, yeah. there's not a chance you were run on things. Uh, basically. Yeah. Every, every, uh, like aggregator had you every I know, it was uh, crazy. podcast was talking about you. I mean, that's, and it's well-deserved. It's, it's fantastic. And then, I mean, to have Linus reach out to you and then you're like, yeah, yeah let's do it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that, yep. that's the big thing. Yep. It was wild too, because they're you know they're a pretty well-oiled machine. Uh, it was it was Linus and his camera guy, who I'm blanking on his name right now. Um, um, but they were which one? He has a few. Uh, it, might, it might have been Edsel at the time. No, no, it nope. was. Oh, I'm drawing a blank, and I feel bad because I you know, we hung out a bunch. That's okay. Um, but uh, you know they they were rolling with a red and like a big like field sound recorder and like you know, lav mics and stuff. And that just doesn't like, it's hard to get away with that in the markets. Um, and even in like, so we were, unfortunately we were kind of limited on where we could go. We, they ended up shooting. I got them to shoot on a cell phone. Cause I was like, if you roll in here with a red, like we're not going to get anywhere, <laughs> you know? Um, and so they still had like a bunch of audio gear sort of hanging out. I was like, you know, the markets like, you do best if you just kind of fly under the radar and, uh, and don't draw a lot of attention. Um, so, you know, it was a bit of an interesting video because of that, um, because we were we were pretty visible and uh, we got shooed off by a security guard at one point, but it was it wasn't too bad. Is he a, is he a bull in a china shop in in person or is that a, a persona he put on for the no, video? No, I don't think so. Um, I mean, there were some real like stressors going on at that time, right? Like. They, you know, they had not been there for very long, so I'm sure he was still jet lagged. They like were very busy with OnePlus and we only had a small amount of time. And I, we were supposed to have like better planned out a video idea. And I had spent the entire day prior, like well into the night with a different YouTuber who was in town that we were supposed to be doing a collab. And like, I don't know, it's, I, I don't want to get too into that story, but like, the plug yeah, got pulled enough. on that at the last minute and like it, it was this whole thing. So I, I was like underprepared walking in, which was totally on me and I felt really bad about. And we had this initial idea that we go look at uh, at like weird Chinese laptops and we just never really tracked those down. You know, Linus, Linus was like, show me some weird laptops. And I just, it wasn't something I'd researched a ton of and we just couldn't find them. And so Linus was like, well, we're going to do what, you know, I, I want to get a video out of this, so we're going to do what we what I always do. 
when I need a video idea, which is we're going to build a PC. And so, you know, we were just kind of, you know, trying to get through that. Um, and I think Linus just wasn't very used to how the markets work. Um, you know, he's used to buying stuff online. And so there was, I think there was some frustration on his end with, uh, with, you know, being on a time crunch and sort of like, you know, people are running off to other booths and there's, you know, getting not super clear answers on how much things cost and <laughs> things like that. So, yeah. I yeah. Cause I'm sure it's, they're used to dealing mostly in volume, right? These sellers are uh, really interested in selling yeah. a single tube or. That is true. Depending that's true or false, depending on what it is, the booths okay. where we were buying PC parts, I think they're pretty used to dealing in one-offs. If we were buying switches or ICs, then yeah, they, they, it's, it's not uncommon um, for certain parts to just like, if you only want one or two to get them for free as a sample um, rather than being asked to pay for them, because the assumption is that you're getting a sample to make sure that it works with your design and then you're going to come back and buy 10,000. And, you know, it's gotcha. actually for people listening, it's really important that you not take advantage of that. Um, and that, you know, you try and pay, uh, if you really only want one or two or five or 10 that you pay <laughs> because those guys aren't going to, you know, they're assuming they're going to make a lot more money off of you and you don't want to take advantage of that. Um, but for the PC parts, you know, like it's PC parts, there may be a markup and you're, you're, you know, you can bargain on all of that for one-offs little parts. We don't. We don't bargain in the markets, um, everybody that I know, because it's they're doing you a favor <laughs> by selling it to you. You know, you're not even worth the time to talk to. Can you maybe speak to because there there is this thing, right, where uh, tourists go in and they don't really have a sense of what it's like to live in Shenzhen. Can you sure can you just explain um, what a, a, a sale of, you know, 10 switches for a dollar might mean to a seller or is that... Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, a lot less than you'd think, right? I think a lot of people come in with this idea of like, everybody in China is super poor. And, uh, you know, every little dollar they make is, you know, is a big, you know, a big win for them. The reality is that sellers may be paying, and it's come down, but the reality is like, just having a booth in the market is quite expensive. Uh, there are booths in the market, you know, some of the booths are only like the width of a sort of glass countertop. And it used to be, I, I am fuzzy on the numbers. I think it used to be like a simple glass countertop could be as much as like a thousand dollars a month. Um, just Holy for the rent. Crap. Uh, I know tool brothers, which are, have featured in a number of my videos, um, who run a, like a tool booth in the cell phone markets. I think they pay like multiples of that, like $4,000 a month, something they have a bigger booth, but, um, it's, it might even be more than that. I, I forget. Um, but it's like, it's real money, uh, for a very small amount of space. Uh, and so a lot of the booths in the sort of component markets, you know, there are a lot of brokers in there that are just buying and selling, but there are a lot of booths that represent a factory. And so they're essentially the factory rep in this, year-round trade show, if you will. And it, and it used to be that the market's purpose was to serve the factories. So the factories would, you know, get an order to make something and they would, 
you know, it's, it's, there's a lot of contract manufacturing, right? So it's not necessarily the factory designed the product. It's the factory got an order from a customer for, to make something. And then they would go to the markets to track down all of the parts that they needed. And with, you know, the advent of the internet and online marketplaces, that's just not the main way that, you know, factories are, are sourcing parts these days. Although I would love to be there right now during the chip shortage because I, I bet the markets are bananas right now. Um, I bet there's all sorts of interesting things happening there. Bananas in which sense? Because um, I would think there would be fewer parts, right? Sort of. <laughs> so there are sort fewer okay. new parts, but I bet there are a oh. lot of used parts floating around the market right now. So there is one of my favorite places in the market I call the underground underground chip market because it is, it is both underground in the physical sense. It is below the street level uh, and it's literally below the street. And uh, it is also underground in the sense that like there's a lot of things happening there that are not above board sale of new chips. I won't say that it's like criminal in any way. I don't think it is. Uh, there probably is some, I mean, there's always a little bit in every market, um, anywhere in the world, but, um, a lot of it is just like chip reclamation, right? So you'll see, they take, uh, like one of those like pistol grip, hot air guns that you would use for like peeling paint and mount that in a, in a, like in a stand. So it points straight down, they'll turn it on and they'll just sit there and throw boards underneath it and pull them off with tweezers. Right. Uh, like the least like precise method of pulling chips off things. And then those chips often go through like a process of cleaning them up. So they'll, you know, clean up the pads on them with a soldering iron. They'll take isopropyl to them and clean off the chips. Sometimes they'll even, (laughs) they'll even etch off the markings and remark them. And that's where things get a little dodgy. Um, But they will often put them in trays and then resell them. And so it'll be things like memory chips. Uh, And, but you can buy like, I've seen bags, like gallon Ziploc size bags full of like A7 chips off of iPhones, right? It almost looks like you could buy them by the pound and they're in rough shape, you know? And I just, like those, I don't know what anybody does with them. Like, what do you do with a bag full of I7, you know, iPhone chips? Uh, But the memory chips like definitely find their way back onto manufacturing lines. And, uh, you know, all the guys that I know that do you know, we're doing manufacturing at the time, they wouldn't touch those with a 10 foot pole because you don't know. I mean, you're not guaranteed that all of the chips work. Right. And so, you know, if you're putting those chips onto a board on a pick and place line, you're going to, let's say, you know, let's say 5% of the chips are bad. Now, you know, if you're only using one used chip for like a memory, memory chip or something like that, now 5% of your boards are automatically bad. And so you have to rework 5% of your boards, right? But if you start incorporating multiple reclaimed chips, you know, your error rate gets pretty bad pretty quickly. Uh, and yeah, so they'd be randomly distributed, right? Right, right, exactly. So the chances that you have one bad chip out of three, you know, increases pretty significantly. Um, and so... I don't, I still don't have a great sense of where those are ending up or I didn't at the time. Uh, you know, I would talk to, to folks that are more experienced in manufacturing and they'd say, ah, well, they're ending up in like, you know, kind of knockoff like Shenzhen products, like, uh, dash cams and things like that, where they're really trying to squeeze as much as they can out of the margin. 
And so if they can save 50% on memory chips, you know, that may only be 25 cents or whatever, but that may be, you know, a significant contributor to their margin. Um, but I suspect now with the chip shortage, <laughs> there are a lot more manufacturers out there that are willing to accept, you know, dodgier parts or, or I don't want to say dodgy in the sense of like that there's some sort of scam going on, but I, although I'm sure there are tons of scams, but also just, you know, use chips and, and chips that aren't, you know, in pristine shape because people are really desperate. Yeah. And I mean, some of that is good though. Some, some recycling is good. It's just absolutely where it becomes dodgy. Yeah. Where it becomes dodgy is when you don't know, when you think you're, you're buying absolutely. a brand new chip. That's the, yes. that's the problem because I'm absolutely. all for Oh, I'm all for all of the reuse. And, and I don't mean to speak out against that at all. I think all of that activity is fantastic. I just sometimes wonder who is the recipient of those and really just how do they make it successful, right? How do they, how do they take those chips and use them in a way that doesn't cost them more money than they're saving? Right. Um, Yeah, absolutely. Because production costs are a cost. Right, right. And mm, having to rework boards or debug things or deal with returns, like those are, you know, can be significant uh, costs in terms of labor. Absolutely. And um, well, you know what? I have a bone to pick with you because okay. when you agreed to this podcast, I had in my mind all these brilliant questions <laughs> I would ask you. And then you go and release a new video where you went in a completely different direction yeah. And it's not less interesting than your other stuff. So now what am I supposed to do? We're going to have to talk about your battle bot. What, sure. What inspired you? What? I mean, yeah. oh, geez, yeah, from the beginning, if you so, can. Yeah. So uh, Greg, the team captain of Switchback, um, who's the guy with the, the big uh, black beard, um, who appears pretty prominently in the video, is a good friend of mine from China, from barbecue in China. And he's actually probably the guy that I've learned the most about manufacturing from. His, his background is uh, in, in uh, mechanical engineering uh, turned manufacturing engineer. And uh, so he worked on, on t- in the toy industry for a number of years. Um, and then when I met him, he was in the early stages of starting his current company, which is Rev Robotics, which does, uh, they make, um, components for first robotics teams, the, the high school, um, robotics competitions. And so when I first met him, he was, he was there, uh, working on their first product, which I believe was a motor controller. And, uh, and so, you know, he and I have, have hung out a bunch in China and, um, you know, had kind of stayed in touch since then over COVID and he said, you know, he mentioned offhand, oh, by the way, like I'm working on fielding a, a BattleBots team and applying to, to be on the TV show. And I said, oh, can I come film, you know, the building of the BattleBot? And he said, oh yeah, like you're welcome. And, uh, you know, do you want to just be on the team? And I said, sure. And so that kind of worked out to be this symbiotic thing where, um, you know, one of my main contributions was helping them make their application video and featuring my face prominently in it so that uh, maybe we could get a little more attention from the, uh, from the showrunners to, to get accepted. Um, and I, who knows how much that contributed, but it worked, we got in. And, uh, and so then I went down to, to their warehouse in Dallas, um, for better part of a month 
and uh, hung out with them as we we built the robot on sort of kind of nights and weekends sort of thing. Um, and uh, and you guys had a lot of the parts manufactured in the states, uh, right? Like a lot of the it was laser cut steel and stuff yeah. like that. Yep, yeah, so a mixture. So uh, Send Cut Send, which was a team sponsor. Um, and they sponsor a lot of the BattleBots teams, does laser cutting of sheet metal. And so we got all our aluminum, yeah, vast majority of our aluminum and steel parts cut by them. And then did additional kind of, we welded up all the steel and a lot of additional machining, particularly on the aluminum. Uh, the AR500 is is not very machinable, but um, you know we use that for our chassis. And then there was stuff out of China. Um, Greg got, custom motors made, custom brushless motors made at one of his motor factories in China. Um, and so there's a bit in the video talking about, about um, some, uh, some hurdles, figuring out that the, uh, the way they wind those motors, they actually bring all the winding wires all the way out to the leads. And, you know, the winding wires are obviously covered in enamel. Well, the, the folks that were swapping out connectors on them didn't realize that. And so we had some, some problems with there being kind of, uh, um, open circuits, uh, where there shouldn't have been because there wasn't good contact on the, on the connectors against the, the crimped connectors against the, uh, the enamel wires. Uh, and then I think we were using some Chinese motor controllers, some like VESC, uh, copies for a while. And I, I don't know whether we, I don't remember whether we ended up using those in the end or not. I know we on camera, we blew up several and I, I can't remember what actually went into the robot in the end. Um, but yeah. Yeah. I see lots of people blowing up those, uh, VESC, uh, ESCs. Yeah. I think just the unfortunate part is when you're driving a large brushless motor, um, you have the option to go with a VESC, which is, you know, somewhere here up in Canada, a, um, a knockoff one will cost you about 150 bucks. Yep. And the next step up is something that you would use in like a like, like a golf cart almost. And that thing is like 600 bucks. So it's right. like either you risk a couple vests or, you know, you get yeah. a boutique manufactured uh, or a fancy speed controller. Yep. So I, I, I feel the pain. I definitely feel yeah. the pain on that one. Well, and it's I mean, budget is a real concern on these on these robots. You know, I mean, just the bar is high enough now to be competitive, you really have to spend a lot of money. Right. And, and, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's definitely a case of engineers optimizing everything they possibly can. Our budget, I don't know the exact numbers, but it was somewhere around 40,000 for us to compete just, just in, in terms of parts and robots, not, not in terms of travel or anything, but for us to compete on, on the last season was about 40 grand. And there were teams there that were spending upwards of 85 grand. Um, Holy. yeah, it's, it's a lot of money. So, I mean, it's like, if you look at the show, that's millions of dollars of robots that were paid for by the builders, not by the production company. Like you get a little bit of money for competing, but it, it doesn't cover your, your nut to, to field a team by a long shot. And so you end up getting, getting sponsors like send, cut, send, um, to kick in money. And we had, we had. Send and Xilinx and uh, SolidWorks and Strange Parts was a sponsor. Rev was a sponsor. Um, and uh, I'm probably forgetting one or two. Um, but, you know, it's really crucial to be able to put on, 
put on a team like that. And so, you know, you're looking at really expensive batteries, you know, motor controllers are crazy expensive. Generally you're running some sort of custom motor um, and then just tons of machining and, and, you know, laser cut metal and things like that. You know, we, we made our own wheels from scratch. So you've got all the materials for that. And the piece that a lot of people don't realize on top of all of that is you're not building just one robot. If you show up with a single robot, chances are you won't make it all the way through the competition. Um, you know, the, the robots, you know, even robots that win get a fair amount of damage. And so we showed up with three full robots and that's pretty typical for, for any team that wants to be competitive. Um, you know, they all look the same We And then you also have like all of these additional attachments and configurations that, you know, you, you know, a bit in advance who you're competing, usually like within 24 hours of fighting, you know, who you're competing against and you may want to really reconfigure the design of your robot, depending on what, what bot you're up against, you know, and what their design is. So, you know, additional forks and, you know, we could change our weapon configuration, all of this. Well, all of this costs money. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, uh, so, you know, when we're talking about the difference between a $150 motor controller and a $600 motor controller, you know, you multiply that times, well, you know, you have to have, uh, we had to have four different motors in a robot, right? Two wheels, the arm raising and lowering and the weapon, right? Uh, that adds up real quick. And, you know, times three robots, like, you know, you're looking at thousands and thousands of dollars in just motor controllers. So it's crazy. Yeah, and there's... I think that was one of the revelations that you made in the video that actually drew a gasp from me. I thought they were single robots that people yeah. would just fix between rounds, which no. I thought they were just brilliant but no it's it's multiple robots and yeah i don't know if i'm a better person for knowing now or uh, <laughs> if i'd rather go back to a world where i didn't know a little too much how the sausage is made yeah it's um yeah yeah there are definitely a bunch of and it's not to say that there aren't people fixing robots i mean we were you know it's a two-week like shooting period for the competition and you know there's an entire you know pit area where all, each team has their own pit and we we had the advantage of every single person on the team except for me had competed in first. And so they were all really used to rolling out to a competition with all of the necessary things to maintain a robot. Uh, and, and you know, so, so we, we had one of the nicer pits because we just kind of, they just rolled out their first, you know, their first kit. Um, and, uh, and so it was... You know, it's real friendly in the pits. People come over uh, to borrow tools and things like that. And we were definitely um, one of the one of the teams that had uh, a lot of tools that were getting getting uh, borrowed and used and stuff, which was awesome. Um, uh, sorry, I've lost lost the train of thought here. Uh, oh, That's repair. Fine. So repair. Yes, so there we go. We are spending pretty much. You know, you fight. You don't fight every day, right? I mean, we got. I think like we got three fights in the main season. And then you, I think it's, it's came out last night. Um, there's, they did the, the champions bracket. Um, so I think I can say, I don't even know. I don't, I don't know how many fights okay. we got in that bracket. I'm not, we, I'm not going to spoil need to, anything. We don't need to spoil it. No, it's fine. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, and this is not coming out for another month. So we can say, I think we lost that fight. And so we got five fights total over the course of two weeks. But you're spending a lot of the time in between repairing bots, right? So even if we have another bot ready to go, 
every single time we're basically tearing the robot completely apart and putting it back together. Um, you know, the one I mean, that, that makes fought. sense. Yeah. And, and everybody else is pretty much doing the same thing. And, and God forbid you should do well. <laughs> there was an amazing moment and I am really bummed that it wasn't captured on camera, but um, there was an amazing moment where a uh, witch doctor and I forget who they were up against were prepping for the final fight, right? The title fight. And Witch Doctor is like out of working robots. <laughs> like they oh no. They are they are have like two hours to go and they are frantically trying to cobble together a working robot. Uh and it was this amazing drama and I'm like I'm shocked that they didn't do a better job filming that. There were like no cameras in sight. But um you know so the, so on site there's like um, Lincoln set up a welding tent and had certified welders there um, that could do welding repairs. Uh, Haas and Autodesk had some mills there so you get new parts milled. And then there was like an arrangement with McMaster Car where McMaster was doing same day delivery twice a day to the pits from their facility Holy. in LA. So they, they were, if you ordered like by a certain time in the morning you would get your order at in the evening. Uh, and then if you ordered by a certain time in the evening, you'd get it the next morning. And they were having a courier drive out twice a day from LA to Vegas to bring parts to people um, for repair, which was pretty awesome. Um, that was- That is awesome. Yeah, that was that was like McMaster car. I'm a huge McMaster fan. And like, that was definitely a piece of like McMaster magic. I am a McMaster fan, but unfortunately, I only have an AliExpress budget, so yeah, you can definitely that. see where the <laughs> I hear that <laughs> disconnect is. I am in a similar oh, situation, but there are some things that, and there's particularly if you're blocked on a project, you know, being able to go to McMaster and go, "This is exactly what I want, and I'm going to get it tomorrow morning," and that's sometimes worth paying for for me, at least. That's the one thing working at the. I, I work at a. Uh, I guess in the States, you guys would call it a community college. Here, we just call it okay. a college. Sure. It's a trade school, basically. Yep. Mm -hmm. And when we buy stuff from uh, education companies, like we'll have these stand engines, which just have all the functions of a vehicle. Um, and it's just integrated in the stand. So you have just picture an engine in a giant uh, metal cradle with okay. uh, a gauge cluster and the, the key and the, the the engine computer with all the breakouts so you can test sure. all the pins and stuff like that. Um, but they they use McMaster car parts on their things. Like, you know, those pre, you can buy like gears and uh, uh, belts and pulleys sure. and just anything. And so when when we design our own ones of those, a couple of the, the teachers have, have put together them themselves. And they're looking at, oh, I just wonder how we can, you know, we need we need some sort of gear to flip this thing upside down so they can see the bottom of the engine. And I'm like, yeah, just go onto the ones that we have, read the part number off of it, and just order it from <laughs> McMaster Car. And it yeah, blew absolutely. their minds that you can just order <laughs> these parts like that. Yeah, like, literally anything you want, you just you, you just order it off McMaster Car. It's one of those. It's one of those websites that has the potential to make dreams happen, you know, as long as you're willing to empty your bank account, basically. It's insane. Yep. Are you familiar with the term um, DFM, design for manufacturing? Uh, yes, but in a very uh, high level, uh, 
yeah, high level sense, just the sure. Sort so, of like I mean, the, just the in case anybody else isn't, uh, design for manufacturing is basically taking like a prototype of a product and re engineering it to be the most conducive to be manufactured uh, using modern manufacturing techniques, right? So, you know, you may be going from like, a 3D printed case to uh, an injection molded case, which, you know, injection molding requires a bunch of changes to sort of make the mold work and, and whatnot. Uh, and then there are a bunch of things that you might do on like a PCB to make it, you know, assemblable on a uh, uh, um, pick and place machine. I, um, a little while back, heard the, um, the uh, phrase, design for McMaster car. Oh God. And it's the <laughs> it's the concept of designing something so that 100% of the parts can come from McMaster car for like rapid prototyping. Um, and it's exactly what you're talking about uh, where, you know, you can, they have such an extensive catalog that you can find pretty much everything you need. And so it was, it was kind of this idea of like figuring out how to sort of change your design approach so that you know, you could use things like um, T-slot aluminum rails or, you know, whatever, like whatever McMaster car had to make it so that you could spin a new iteration of whatever this product was or this design or this, you know, particular mechanic by placing a new order to McMaster car and getting it overnight, you know, and, and therefore iterate a lot faster, which I thought was really awesome. I think that McMaster car is America's... Uh, sort of version of the Chinese um, markets. It's just it's just all you know online yes. catalog catalog. Yeah, but, you know. I yeah I think so. I mean, it's far more curated than the Chinese markets. I mean, the markets are like this organized chaos that um, is in many ways quite inefficient, right? The you know Mc, one of the reasons I like McMaster is that I can go on there and find exactly what I, what I want in about five minutes, and you know have it on its way in the morning. Um, the in-person markets in China, you know, finding that same thing may take me half a day. <laughs> you know, if I don't know where to okay. go look, yeah. you know, it might take me quite a while to find the right booth with the right thing. The markets are actually much better. Like I don't go to the markets to find a specific thing that I already know and I want generally. Generally, I go to the markets to discover things that I don't otherwise know about, right? Or get things that may be hard to buy online, right? Like iPhone parts. Um, and eventually, you know, you make relationships in the markets and then that helps you find the things that you want. But like going the first time and looking for something in particular is a, a fool's errand. You know, you're never going to find what you're looking for, but you're going to find 15 other things that are really cool and, you know, inspire you to do other things. Uh, you know, when I was in China, like I had, you know, I would, like I had a chip broker in the markets, Andy, who I would go to, and then he would track things down for me, specifically when it came to components. Um, and I had, like, I knew how to get things that I wanted in the cell phone markets, kind of had a lay of the land of like where different parts were. And you could kind of wander around and just look under the glass and ask a few questions and find what you needed. But for just about everything else, I would order it online in China, right? AliExpress, like, uh, not AliExpress, AliExpress is Western facing Taobao, um, and, um, 1688, which is sort of the like internal equivalent to Alibaba. Um, okay. and then there's a few others like JD, which is sort of more of like, a, a like better curated sort of Amazon 
experience. Taobao is sort of like a really chaotic version of eBay meets Amazon in that it's all okay. independent sellers. Um, it's not auction like eBay. It's all buy it now. Um, but it sort of has the like breadth and depth of eBay, <laughs> you know, eBay meets Amazon, right? Um, it's, you can literally buy anything on Taobao. Um, I had a friend buy 50 live geckos on Taobao to try and get rid of the cockroaches in his apartment. Um, I was just about to ask if you could buy a live chicken and I guess the answer would be yes. (laughs) Yes, I'm sure you can. Um, and one of the interesting things, particularly about Taobao in Shenzhen is that if you're looking for like an electronic component or, you know, something along those lines, chances are it's already in the city. It's already in Shenzhen. And so when you buy it on Taobao, it can get there as quickly as 24 hours. Um, you know, it's it's coming across town on a motorbike, and so it's it's really not that inefficient. Um, you know, it's it's pretty quick. Um, we've uh, we've uh, like an hour already passed on this podcast, which yeah. is uh, uh, which is sad because you know we've got so much more to cover. But if you have the time, I would like to cover sure. one last thing. Sure. Because I think um, I'm looking at it more as a well. First of all, I'm curious, but also because it's a little bit of a public service because you tragically you came back to the states to do a tour of something if i'm mis- if i'm not mis- mistaken and then you had an accident do you mind uh, yeah. talking about that a little bit so it was actually while we were building the battlebot um we were oh. yeah we we were um in the warehouse and it was it was my own fault doing something dumb i they had a like a metal pipe, um, like, I don't know, let's say eight feet long aluminum pipe that was part of their trade show booth that was just kind of leaning up in the corner. And I, when I first showed up, I was working on another project there that still hasn't seen the light of day for, for a bunch of reasons I won't go into. Um, I, they had kind of given me the corner of the warehouse and I had, they had one of those big pallet scales. It's like the size of a pallet, it's made out of steel and you can drop a pallet on it and tell you how much it weighs for shipping. Well, I stood that up on edge and stuck it um, between the wall and a and one of those pallet racks, and the pipe was behind it. And so, as I was sticking it in there, the pipe fell over and didn't hit me or anything. And I didn't think much more of it. I kind of just crammed it all in there. Well, when I went to go pull the pallet scale out so we could weigh the battle bot, uh, that pipe came back and clocked me in the head and uh, in the back of the head and. I'd had one bad concussion before, um, and I, I pretty quickly know within a few minutes, it didn't knock me out or anything, but I pretty quickly knew I had a concussion. And so, you know, I went and got a CT scan at the ER and they said, well, you know, nothing doesn't look like any structural damage, you know, go rest and, and, uh, it should heal. And, um, I was just real, real concussed and it just never really got much better. You know, it, it got a little bit better over the next six months. But, you know, I was I was in pretty bad shape. I was um, like for a while I couldn't drive. I was like getting nauseous riding in the passenger seat with my eyes open, just looking at the, the oncoming scenery. Um, I was having a hard time making decisions. I was slurring speech like it was it was not good. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I ended up having to leave New Mexico. I was living in New Mexico at the time and I ended up having to leave because I couldn't get access to um, any specialty healthcare, pretty much any healthcare at all. There just weren't enough doctors, aren't enough doctors in New Mexico, particularly specialists. It was like four to six month waiting times to get in to see a neurologist. Um, 
And uh, so I ended up moving up to Colorado and um, started to get a little bit better healthcare. And then I put out a video saying that I had this concussion and kind of an amazing thing happened. Yeah, um, I got an email from the um, uh, like social media manager slash online or like marketing manager of um, a top concussion clinic that I was already aware of and was like trying to get into, but they had a huge waiting list. And he said, Oh, I'm such a fan of your channel. Um, I think we're the perfect solution for you. You know, if you'd be up for it, I'd love to get you in here for an fMRI uh, scan free of charge. Um, and we'll see if it's a good fit. And we talked a little bit more. And he, they said, Hey, if you're willing to do a video and kind of just show what your experience is, we'd love to have you here and we'll, we'll cover the cost of treatment. And I said, well, that sounds awesome. Um, cause I already thought highly sold, of you guys. Right? <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And we, we discussed a bunch cause I didn't want to be in a situation where if it didn't work, I couldn't be open about that. So we, you know, we really carefully talked through with them, you know, Hey, like, and they, they were very on board with that. They said, Hey, we just want you to be honest. We already know our treatment is good. You know, you don't have to talk us up. Just, just tell just be honest. Um, we just want to get the word out there that there is better concussion treatment to be had, you know, because a lot of people really suffer for a long time. And so I said, okay, fair enough. And, and we agreed, you know, I would have final say over anything I said. And so in, uh, in January, end of January, I went out there for a week. Um, it's a, it's a week long intensive, you know, eight hour a day treatment. Um, and, uh, I went from, an abnormal fMRI scan at the beginning of the week in terms of blood flow in the brain to a completely normal one at the end of the week, which is, I mean, I, I was like six, wow. seven months into my recovery at that point. And like, I was like, I was so skeptical going in because their website has all of these really amazing results on it. And I was like, I don't know if this is a scam. Like I was real skeptical and you know, I'm going for a week. Like what can they possibly do in a week? And, uh, and it's all non-invasive, like kind of physical therapy type things, you know, physical and cognitive therapy. So it's, you know, stand on a ball while pushing lights on a, on a wall as they light up while carrying on a conversation type stuff, you know, pat your tummy and or pat your head and rub your tummy kind of things. And, um, I was like, I don't know, like, is it really gonna make that big of a difference? And, uh, sure enough, like, yeah, abnormal scan to completely normal scan on Friday from Monday to Friday. And... I was already noticing like glimmers of changes in sort of my subjective experience, you know, with my symptoms. Um, and, you know, they said, look, you're going to be, you're going to, you might be even feel worse at the end of the week in terms of, you know, we're just, we're going to work you really hard and this is going to be exhausting and we might make your symptoms worse, but it's okay. And they said, you know, give it like a few months, you know, up to six months and you'll see the full benefits of the treatment. And sure enough, like, even by the end of the week, I could sort of start to see glimmers. One of the things that I didn't realize, but I wasn't, I wasn't dreaming or at least wasn't remembering my dreams prior to treatment. And I started having really vivid nightmares on like day three. And I went, okay, this is different. Like, you know, I'll accept any change at this point. You know, these aren't particularly yeah, pleasant. Something. But like, yeah. Hey, I'll take it. And, uh, and you know, even within a week or two, I was like, oh my God, like I definitely feel better. I'm not a hundred percent. You know, I'm still getting massive headaches and stuff, but, um, but like I can function at a different level than I could before. And, uh, and it's just kept getting better and better. You know, it's, I've had a few setbacks here and there, 
Um, but I'm now at the point where I can, I can work full time again. I can be in front of a computer pretty much as long as I want, which was like, I couldn't be in front of screens at all for the first six months. You know, it was, it just gave me massive headaches. My brain would kind of shut down. And, um, so yeah, it's not, it's, you know, I'm still getting headaches, um, pretty much every day. Um, but they're low level enough. They're not slowing me down and I kind of know how to manage them and, and can, can do my thing. So I, it's, it's great. You know, like I feel my, feel like myself again and uh, I'm able to do what I love. So I, uh, I feel very I'm lucky really and I'm happy I, to hear that. I feel super lucky that cognitive FX, you know, um, got me in for treatment the way they did and, and were willing to cover the cost. I was ready to pay for it out of pocket. Um, unfortunately, most concussion care that's worth anything, uh, insurance doesn't cover. Um, it's, it's really lacking. There's very, there's way less, um, concussion specialty clinics out in the U S that then we need. And in, in the world in general, I mean, cognitive FX treats 19 patients a week right now, um, is the maximum they can handle. And I would say half were from Europe. Um, there were a number of folks like from the Netherlands that had flown all the way to the U S for treatment, um, because they couldn't get sufficient treatment in, in Europe. So you know, it's, um, it's really frustrating. I, I, I really want to see that change because I was the person at the clinic who, uh, to my surprise, it was the shortest time after my injury. There were folks there that had been dealing with their post-concussion syndrome for decades and uh, had only recently figured out that they could get treatment for it. They just kind of had, had given up. And um, that's a real shame, you know, and, and it's, and it's not just adults, it's children as well. Like how many kids, you know, get concussions as a kid and then are just labeled the, you know, the problematic kid who has anger issues or the kid who, uh, who just isn't good in school. And it's actually, you know, concussion related eye issues or it's, you know, concussion related emotional regulation and autonomic nervous system regulation. And like all of this stuff is fixable, but we don't have you know, at least in the US, and I, I would argue, you know, worldwide, uh, we are not good at evaluating concussions. We're not good at evaluating long-term concussion symptoms, you know, which they call post-concussion syndrome, syndrome, which is a fancy word for concussion symptoms that last more than three months. <laughs> um, concussion symptoms that don't get better uh, is really all that means. We're not good at evaluating it and we're not good at treating it despite the medical field, knowing what the good, the best treatment is, we have, you know, in the past 30 years, it's changed significantly. And yet, uh, most neurologists, even ones that say they have a specialty in concussions are not using the, uh, the latest research. They're using 30 year old research that we know actually harms recovery and doesn't help it. So, uh, you know, I, I don't want to, I could talk about this all day, but I just sort <laughs> yeah. of want to say to people out there, uh, a couple things. Um, one, if you get a concussion, um, don't take it lightly. Um, secondly, anybody that tells you to rest after a concussion, you can rest for 24 to 48 hours and then you need to be up doing stuff. You need to be up going for a walk. You need to be trying to redo the, you know, get back to the things in your life. I think it's one of the things that really impacted my concussion recovery was doing what they call cocoon therapy, which is dark room, you know, no screens, no reading, et cetera, et cetera. And really it just kind of lets your brain stagnate and you need to be up challenging your brain and getting that blood flowing again. Um, and, uh, and that's one of the biggest changes. And then two, 
if you have concussion symptoms that last a long time, you need to be getting into a, a specialty concussion clinic. And if any doctor that tells you to go back to cocooning after you're, you know, a week out, doesn't know what they're talking about and you need to go find somebody else. And even if that means going and talking to cognitive FX, they now have two clinics. They have one that I went to the main one for people who have really long lasting symptoms, but they also have another one that's kind of cognitive FX light that uh, is specifically designed for people who have just had a concussion and it's fully covered by most insurance. So, um, you know, I don't, I'm not pitching them because you know, they, they're a sponsor because they got me in. It's just the people that I found that most know what they're doing in concussion recovery. And there are, I'm sure there are others out there. I just don't know specifics. Um, but don't settle, like don't settle for, um, you know, a concussion. The reality is they, you know, even though they're called mild traumatic brain injuries, they're brain injuries and, uh, you really want to treat it seriously. And, and time is a factor, right? Like you want to be doing the things right away. Um, I have a, an interview up on my second channel with uh, Alina Fong, uh, Dr. Alina Fong, who is one of the founders of Cognitive Effects. And one of the things we touch on in that interview is what should you do right away after getting a concussion? So um, definitely it was go a check great that out. interview. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, she's amazing. And, um, and uh, yeah, I just, she's really down to earth and um, I think is very good at. Uh, she's very articulate and, and able to sort of explain where the, like the state of current concussion recovery and what you should do if you have one. So, yeah. I don't know how much this means to you because I'm very much an outsider. And I mean, we know each other from the length of this podcast. Sure. But if I'm looking at, uh, as an outsider, um, your last couple of videos uh, pre-injury was like the folding iPhone, the 10,000 uh, volts at altitude and then the scanning yep. electron microscope which yeah i found they were not um like you know you know in a channel sometimes you worry that the channel will stagnate over time but sure. to me they just kept getting better so those were great awesome. videos thank you your uh, mri scan one uh was different format so it's hard to judge it on the yep. on its own merits but the battle bots it feels like it just picked up where the electron microscope left off. Oh, that so, makes me so happy to hear. Yeah, thank you. Good. Thank I'm you. glad it's, because uh, I've noticed yeah. I'm watching that. I just, you know, breath in, breath out, uh, you know, strange parts is back is what yeah. I what I felt. And so if that's what you're aiming for, you nailed it. And yes. And I mean, I if if the future of your channel is more videos in this genre like you used to be doing, this is yep. This is all I can ask for as a viewer. This is the That's best the stuff. goal. That's the goal. Just to get back to it here, you know, COVID and the concussion have have really been kind of a a, a stumbling block here. But uh, but I'm I'm full bore ahead at this point. And the and the big focus is getting back to doing ambitious engineering projects. Um, I uh, one of my tasks for today is to go order a bunch of iPhones for something coming up, and uh, oh and then to get back to factory tours. So uh, I really want to restart the factory tours. And, uh, know i know that resonates with a lot of folks in the audience and i love doing them and um you know it's something that i think we're finally at the point where it it starts to make sense uh in terms of like covid and stuff you know i've been been real careful about not getting sick with covid um particularly with the concussion symptoms they don't long covid and and uh concussions don't stack very well um so i've just yep. been real careful i can, there, I can but... attest yeah. long covid is not great um i've had yeah. i had covid in december 
And since then, like I, I recovered, like obviously it was, it hit me pretty hard, even though I was uh, double yeah. vaccinated at the time and now I'm boosted. Yep. But I still, the, the thing is I've struggled for a couple of years with uh, anxiety. And the problem yep. is when I feel my anxiety coming up, it's now accompanied with breathlessness. So that's, oh. the, that's the, been the worst thing. And I always yeah. feel like my, uh, like my ability to think has been taken away or, or reduced when I have the long the long COVID symptoms to the point where I got myself a yep. pulse oximeter because I thought I was not getting enough oxygen to the brain. Like that's what it yep. feels like. And so, yeah, I would, you know, zero out of 10, do not recommend um, yeah. COVID for the chance of long COVID. It's just not worth yeah. it. Like it's bad. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And I think it's far more widespread than we really understand right now. I, if oh, I can, I might make a recommendation yeah. um, for you to try for those symptoms. Uh, I'm all um, ears. Cognitive effects has actually been trialing um, a similar treatment program that they use for post-concussion syndrome for people with long COVID, particularly the cognitive uh, pieces. But what you might try is one of the key pieces of their treatment is um, it's like cardio exercise intervals done in a very specific way. So you do it with a heart rate monitor and you, so it can be like a stationary bike or a treadmill or something like that. You, the goal is to, um, I think we were doing like 45 seconds of really heavy effort, right? So get your heart rate as high as you can and then um, stop completely and let your heart rate recover and use sort of intentional breathing. They were having us breathe in for four seconds, out for six, and hold it for one, and then breathe in for four. Um, and and when you when you're first like out of breath after doing a heavy effort, you know you have to work towards that. But then once you get your uh, your breath under control, going back to that four six one, um, and then as soon as you can get your heart rate down to sort of you know close to a resting level and your breath under control, then redo that effort and do that for thirty minutes and. The goal of that is to teach your body to re-regulate your autonomic nervous system. So probably when you're getting anxiety, your autonomic nervous system is kicking in and it is um, misregulating your breath right now. Um, and your heart rate probably is spiking too. And so yes, the idea is of this is to actually train your heart rate to go up uh, when you're under heavy effort and then train it to come down when, when you're not under heavy effort. Right. So to get that to re-regulate. And so for concussions, you get that like headache and brain fog is partly because the, and this is just my understanding, not a doctor, you know, take this with a grain of salt. None of us are doctors or right. else we'd be making a lot more money. Folks, yeah, so. exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, but the, the problem with post-concussion syndrome is that your autonomic nervous system isn't working properly. And what it does is it just raises the the heart rate and the blood pressure in your brain and just holds it there even when you're uh, just sitting and that causes headaches and then it causes brain fatigue and, and brain fog as well. So you might try that. It's, it's, um, you know, the worst thing that'll happen is you get in better shape. <laughs> so, but Which it's is, been yeah. one of the things Who that's cares, really yeah. helped me. And, um, I know that they're using similar techniques on, on, um, long COVID folks. So, um, might be worth a shot. When not to get political, but when my sure. local government said, "You know what? 
it doesn't matter even though the cases are still there's still a lot of them we're just canceling all of the uh, restrictions uh, and i it hit me then that well other people don't care about other people's health which whatever like this is not a political podcast um so i said you know i'm going to have to try to get into good shape so i actually lost 40 pounds in the last oh, wow. uh, 6 months congratulations in order That's to awesome. thank you and it's it was bad because eating was my like it's i'm a stress eater so yeah, for same. those listening i'm 59 i was 225 now i'm about 100 i i hover around 190 or so congratulations and, that's awesome um, thank you and i'm aiming to go to 180 and uh it's just been hard because it's been you know anxiety the last couple yep. couple of weeks and so yeah i will i'll definitely give this a shot because yep. i really have no excuse not to try <laughs> yeah so yeah if it, it, it should not really cause any damage it uh but exactly it, yeah it might really help um yeah so yeah i mean thank you for that i i hope it yeah, works absolutely. and uh if it works me you'll too. be getting a dm from me and uh awesome i don't know we'll we'll awesome. see and i would give it at um, least like a month well let's see you you probably should see some effect of like a couple of weeks of doing that um they had us doing it every day like five days a week um okay like and even at home like it was a take-home thing and, and um yeah so you oh, can interesting. try that once yeah. a day or, or multiple times a day? Once a day. Once yeah, a day. Once okay. a day, five days a week. I think I can manage once a day. Off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I don't think I can manage multiple commitment. times a day. Yeah, for sure. No, no, no. Once a day. Once a day. Um, I found it's best to do at the beginning of the day just because it gets my blood flowing in my brain um, for the rest of the day. Like I feel better, um, you know, um, just cognitively. Like if I'm, if I'm struggling with um, like brain fog, um, it can really like reduce some of those symptoms. So, yeah. Well, there we go. So I'm going to give that a shot. I would also like everyone listening to this um, to go check out uh, Scotty's videos. You know, the newest video, I think, is just uh, sort of like the the hat uh, on on the channel because the very bleeding edge plus it's battle bots. Who doesn't like robots? Yeah. Um, but he has a whole bunch of interesting things. Uh, pretty much throw a dart at the screen. I don't think you're going to hit a bad video, which is phenomenal and you have a second channel as well stranger parts which is a little hard to find yep. in the algorithm <laughs> but yes you probably have it but it is linked off the main page. channel yeah yeah and exactly. it will be linked in the description of this podcast as well if for whatever reason my channel is easier to find than scotty's <laughs> awesome. um any any closing thoughts for the people listening out there i don't think so i don't think so this has been great yeah thanks for having me on dan Oh, it's, the pleasure is mine. Trust me. This is, uh, I, I cannot believe, uh, who I got to speak to today and, um, <laughs> well, it's, it's awesome. And I yeah, hope, it's uh, been a, been a pleasure. I hope we keep in touch and maybe if Absolutely. you have an extra hour to burn, you'll maybe want to come back for another episode in the future. Cause there's so much sure. more we could have covered. Yeah. Hit me up. Um, yeah, I, I, let me get a few more projects under my belt. So we have, uh, some more good stuff to talk about. And that, folks, is how you pressure someone into coming for a second episode. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, thanks for listening, folks. Um, make sure to comment on one of his videos as well, uh, telling him that you came from the podcast because it'd be interesting to see how many people sure. listened all the way to the end. And, um, yeah, thanks for listening.